0: Good morning, friends. Let's uh, flip back over to Romans chapter 1. We'll keep going through the book of Romans this morning. I hope you guys are well. Had a good weekend. Last week, if you weren't with us, or I suppose even if you were, we looked at what uh, I think would be the key verses for the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans. Romans where he says there in chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so last week we just went through and we looked at uh, how salvation happens, how it came along, The, the fact, and it is a fact, it's not an opinion, it's not just a doctrine, but throughout the scripture, from the beginning to the end, the reality is that a person is only saved by grace through faith because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And as soon as we bring anything else into it, whether it be baptism or speaking in tongues or the King James Bible or circumcision or the Sabbath or any other list of things, in to say, no, you need this to be saved, that we move away from what the true power, the dynamic by which salvation works. And that is that Jesus offered himself at Calvary that his blood was the prophesied blood to be shed from all the old covenant, all the sacrifices, all the feasts, all the prophecies, and that through that sacrifice of his blood, we find cleansing. The scripture says we find salvation, we find redemption, we find sanctification. Everything that we have, we have in Christ through what he accomplished at Calvary. And then he rose again from the dead. That's why the gospel is a gospel of peace. There's no peace in making sure that you're saved. There's no peace in in having to work for something. There's no peace in trying to say that righteousness comes from anything outside of what Christ purchased for us. And it's because of that, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the, the only dynamic that works on the planet that a person can be right before God. And so he says, I want to tell everybody about this. And as we looked at, or as we said last week, it will get going this week in more of our verse by verse look through Romans. This morning I'm planning on covering verses 1 through 15. We're just going to call it Paul's Spirit and Calling because we see a real personal. Uh, greeting here, and a real, his, he explains his heart to the Christians uh, there in Rome, to the, to the people. Uh, he says they're called to be saints in Rome, and his desire to see them and so forth. So, we're not going to waste any time. We're just going to dive right into it with this in mind that this is a, a treatise that Paul writes. It's a letter that Paul writes on the gospel and how it works. And in, so, in Romans 1 and verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised before him through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is the king of the run the on sentence, isn't he? In the beginning of Many of his letters and just in, in general, many places where he writes, he writes some of the longest sentences uh, that are documented for us. And I don't know about you, but it, when you read some of these greetings, it can really seem to kind of get, you, I don't want to say convoluted, because I'm not going to call the Holy Spirit convoluted, nor Paul. But it can be difficult to understand because he, he makes all these qualifying statements. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed there, but he says Paul, and then there's this comma for us in English, this comma and then it's all the way down in chapter seven where it says to all are in Rome. <laughs> so everything from verse one, the beginning of verse one, to the beginning of verse seven are kind of these these uh, parenthetical, which, you know, means parentheses type statements that he's making about uh, who he is, what the gospel is, who Jesus is, and so forth. So it's it's quite a greeting that he gives us. But he writes to say the, to them, and he says, look, it's Paul. And he first he calls himself a servant of Jesus, or of Christ Jesus. And, and you may have a little one in your translation. I'm reading from the ESV, and I suppose I should have said if you need a Bible, I think they're out in the seats now. Uh, and we're, we're we're reading from the, the ESV, so which is the English Standard Version. But he says there he's called to be a, that he's a servant of Christ Jesus. And we've talked about this a lot. So for time's sake, I won't re-go back through. I won't go back through it again. But what he says there is he's a doulos or a bond slave, someone who is voluntarily enslaved themselves to another that has given lifelong commitments, and it's a, a reference back to the old covenant. Uh, something that you could do, you could uh, essentially sell yourself into, to be a bond uh, servant or a bond slave. Uh, and we've talked about it a lot. There were a lot of laws about that. But it was a real picture of Christ that ultimately well, a person could say, this person ha- ha- who is in financial trouble, I'm going to sell myself to another person who's not in financial trouble, and this person pays me so that I can take care of my family. And at the end of the term of their service, which the maximum was to be seven years, Uh, then there should be a a release that that person could decide to uh, forever be the servant of the other person. And there was a, uh, uh, it's out of the book of Numbers, I believe, and there was a uh, statement that that person would make. They would say something to the extent of, uh, I love my master and he's treated me well and I'm going to serve him forever. And that would be kind of before the, the town council. Uh, and then that person would then get a, a gold ring through their ear and they would forever be a bondservant to this other person. And so the, the gold ring was to signify if you're at the, in the uh, town, if you're buying things, if you're at merchants or whatever, that people would see that gold ring and it was a, a testimony that the person that that man serves or that woman serves is a, a gracious and a kind person. So Paul uses that analogy, that word doulos, bondservant. He says, that's who I am to Christ, that I've sworn myself to Christ, that I'm forever his slave because he's been so good to me. Which gives us, I think, a glimpse into who Paul as a human being looks at, uh, how he looks at Christ and how not as just this Lord of glory, although he talks about him in those words and he, he sees him that way, but that he's a gracious and a kind and a wonderful master he goes on. He says that he's called to be an apostle, and the idea here is this: in, in the, the word, the, the the verb tense is. It's not that he's called to sometime someday be an apostle, or that that might happen someday. But it's re, it's in, it's in the present idea. So what what he's saying here is, I have. Not only have I been called, but I am an apostle. It's interesting too because he doesn't use the same word uh, in other places uh, in the Greek here, he doesn't use the same word for like one of the big 12. Uh, one of the capital A apostles. It's a different derivative. And the idea here is a word that was common in coin Greek uh, in the day and is, is found in other places, in other manuscripts that are outside extra biblical, just in, in common writings. And the point is just that he is someone who's sent by another with authority. That's what an apostolic ministry is. It's noteworthy that there's similar ideas, like, for example, in Acts 14, 14, where we're told that the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, they went somewhere. Barnabas also numbered in that. And there's other places where other people are labeled as apostles in that same vein, that there are people that are commissioned by God with authority by God to go and to do something. And we'll talk about authority a little bit uh, later, perhaps, if we have time. Because it's not how, sometimes, especially I think for us, when we hear the word authority, it can kind of grate on us or we can kind of think spiritual abuse or this or the the other thing. But we're not referring to those type of things. It's just the idea that, that God has commissioned him and has a message for him and to bring it to other people. So now, as he's uh, kind of listing out for them or describing to who he is to them and his authority or the reason he's writing to them, he said he was set apart for the gospel of God. So he's, he's called, he's a servant of Jesus. He's uh, called, he is walking in the office of an apostle or someone sent with authority. And now he is, says he's set apart for the gospel. So he's making this uh, statement about himself that this is my life. I have been set apart by God for the gospel. That he called me to this very thing. And then he goes on there and he says uh, he's going to actually kind of switch topics a little bit. And this is where it can get almost a little bit confusing. Because these are all autobiographical statements. He's all talking about himself, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now in verse 2 he's going to start and he's going to make a reference to the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, so I don't know about you guys, but when I first started reading the Bible, these kind of sentences would really throw me off because I, I'd be like, well, okay, wait a minute, is, is he saying his apostleship was, was from the prophets? Like, what is, No, he's moving topics now. So he, he said, this is who I am. This is what God's call is in my life. And in a sense, this is why I'm writing to you, or or in the vein in which I'm writing to you. And then he says this he's he's set apart for the gospel, and this gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So he's gonna give a brief synopsis here in these next couple verses about what the gospel is or the fact that it was it's valid, that Jesus is valid. Because he mentions, uh, if we recall from our studies in Acts, he mentions here, uh, in there, I should say over and over again to the Pharisees, to the Jews in synagogues, to Gentiles, that Christ is the one who was always prophesied from the beginning, that he's the promised one, that he's the Messiah, that the the scriptures all pointed to him when he came to the earth. And so he's making a similar point now, and he's just saying, this gospel that I'm set apart for is the gospel that has always been promised through the Torah, through the, the law and the prophets of the Holy Scriptures. And again, not to, to uh, belabor a point, but remember that by this time, there's very, there's, uh, I think that, that we have, I think there's four, three or four letters like Romans that are circulated. I think it's always important to remember that contextually in this time, about 57 AD, when the, when the letter is written, that there is no New Testament. They don't have that. They don't, they, there's no printing press. You don't, one doesn't just go down to the parable or living water or whatever the you know the Christian bookstore is in your area and pick up 15 copies of whatever translations they want. They literally are getting saved from evangelists and and uh, teachers that are going place to place. And then all, later on, people are bringing letters from Paul and others that are testimonies to Jesus. So they have a very limited point of view. They have a very limited amount of resources. Now, I'm not saying that they had a different or somehow worse than us or something like that. I just think when we're reading these things to remember who Paul is and who he's addressing, what kind of materials that they have to consider and and why it's so important that they get a letter like this and why he's expressing himself, why it would be uh, expressing himself would be so valuable. And so when he says, look, it's according to the Holy Scriptures, he's not talking about the New Testament, he's talking about Torah. I already mentioned that. But he's saying, like, as he went through synagogues in different places and home churches, this is our evidence. So it's important to to point that out to believers, especially in in a world where uh, the church is dominated by Jews and so forth, and, and there's Jews in every city, as we read before, that he's saying, look, this is according to the Scriptures. Verse 3, it's the, new, it's the good news, it's the good news that was promised beforehand through the Holy Scriptures, the Torah and the, the Law and the Prophets, and it's concerning His Son. So whose Son? God's Son, right? Because we're going all the way back to verse 2, the gospel of God that's according to the Scriptures. It's the good news about his son. Does that make sense? Can you kind of see the progression there that he's going through? So now he's saying it's the, it's the good news, it's the prophesied uh, good news, and it's prophesied concerning the Son of God. Now he says, who was descended from David according to the flesh. So he makes the point, and this is one of the prophecies uh, that God gave to David, that someone from the line of David would always sit upon the throne of Israel and that the, that the Messiah was to come through the lineage of David, where he was going to be born, what day he would walk into Jerusalem. All those things are prophesied in the Old Testament. I should say walk into Jerusalem for its crucifixion. Those are all prophesied in the Old Testament. So he says that it's, this prophecy is that, that Jesus also, for he was, he's the Son of God, and he's according to the flesh, he's the Son of David. Then he says... Uh, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. And really it might read a little bit better, might be a little more easy to understand. When it says that He was in power according to the Spirit of holiness, that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit and it was, it was in accord with the Holy Spirit that this resurrection was a work of the Holy Spirit. And if we were to go back and look there, we don't have time, but in different places, it talks about in the Psalms and in the New Testament that Christ didn't raise himself from the dead, but that he was raised from the dead by the Father, that he waited, he paid the penalty for sin, and that for those three days he's in the grave, that the Father raised him from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he's making this the gospel plea here. He's he's in his introduction, uh, just kind of giving us, I guess, a taste or a flavor of who this Jesus is, who the gospel, or excuse me, what the gospel is, and and its uh, kind of base uh, credibility. So that he was raised from the dead according to the uh, the Holy Spirit, and it was he was declared the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, and that person is, and he names him Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then he says in verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So he's kind of he's gone through and he's given us a, a, a brief synopsis of the gospel, a brief synopsis of, of why the gospel is valid and who Jesus is. And he makes a very interesting statement about his own uh, his own calling, and it's it's fascinating because he says we, and there's there's really no uh, explanation that I've personally read or searched out as to why he uses we, because he's specifically talking to his own about his own calling. He could be talking about the people that are with him. He uh, it's believed that he wrote this letter from Corinth. Perhaps he was talking about the some of the people that were with him on his travels in his missionary journey that he wrote this. It's hard to say, but he says that he says we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles. So now that he's covered the who is the Savior, who's the Messiah, how the gospel worked, how the gospel was shown to be valid and credible, he's going to say now he himself and, and those with him, he says we have received grace and apostleships. Now he's giving us his mission and the way that his mission is to be gone about, or the, the power, or the, the authority in which he has. But it's interesting, he says, first we received grace. We received grace and apostleship. So in Paul's ministry, he notes first and foremost, the reason he's available to do this is grace, which we would know is unmerited favor. Right? It's important to, to uh, forgive me for defining this a lot, but it's, it's important to understand what grace is, because it helps us to understand what the gospel is and where Paul is coming from. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It is essentially the idea that God gives you what you do not deserve. It gives me what I do not deserve. It's, it's unmerited means to not earn, right? Merit is something that we look at and we say that person or that idea has merit. What we're saying is it has a quality about it that makes it worthy of study or relationship or in endorsing or embracing. That's what merit is. So grace is to receive favor from God without any merit from me. That's very important. It's important that we have that definition down so that when we go through books like this, and and whether it be the words of Jesus, or it be Paul, or Peter, or John, or James, whomever it might be, that we understand, at least intellectually, I think it's a little harder in the heart, but that we understand what he's saying by grace. That God gave him and us, maybe not in his calling, but for all of us, we have unmerited favor from God. Now, what's favor? Favor literally is, we use the expression, will you do me a favor? And when we say to something, will you do me a favor, what we're saying politely is, I'm going to give you nothing, and I'm asking you to do something for me, right? If I say to my wife, uh, you know, yesterday we had to take the truck down, it had a flat, and I filled it up, and I'd take it down to to the... uh, or Friday, I guess it was, to the shop to get the flat fixed. And I, t- I asked her, I said, will you do me a favor and pick me up at, at uh, Box K so when they, they take the truck in? And she said, oh, yeah, sure, I'll pick you up. And what I'm saying is I'm not going to do anything for you. I just need you to do something to take time out of your day with no return and come get me at the shop. So that's what a favor is. You know, maybe a better example is if I'm sitting on the couch after Sunday and I say, hey, will you make me some popcorn? I'm just going to continue to sit here on the couch and read a book or stare at this TV, but would you please get up instead of me and make me popcorn? And if she says yes, which she typically does, you know, she's doing me a favor because she's kind. So when we look at the idea of having unmerited favor by God, I don't want to over-intellectualize it, but the intellectual uh, definition here is important because it lays out exactly what God did for us. And so the first thing that Paul talks about in his ministry and in his calling of apostleship and bringing about the obedience of faith, he says it was given to him by grace. And it actually, as we continue through the book, when we get to chapter 12, he's going to make a statement. And he says, every single believer, every single person has gifts of grace that God gifts each individual for his kingdom and he does it not because we deserved it or we earned it or something, but because he wants to bless us and be able to use us, not in a negative way, but a very positive way, to bring about fulfillment in our own life and fulfillment in the lives of others, to walk in that for which we were always designed. So Paul says we've been given grace. Then he says we've been given apostleship. And again, we already defined that. It's the idea that he was sent essentially on a mission or sent on an errand or however you would like to label it, but they're sent somewhere in the authority and with the message of another. And so Paul says, that's how my ministry started. That's how I'm called to do what I'm called to do because God's given me the grace to do it. And you can see that when you read through this, this guy's a genius. Inspired by the spirit, he has this spiritual genius where he lays out this amazing, comforting, and fantastic uh, lecture, treatise, however you'd like to label it, letter about what the gospel is and how it works. So he's been given the grace to do it, and then God commissioned him to do it, and now he's gone and done it. But he says at the end of this commission, or the point of this this grace and this apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, working backwards, the word nations there is ethos, so it's where we get our word ethnicity. Right. So it's it's Gentiles for some some of your translations might actually say the Gentiles, because the idea is people outside of Judaism. Right. And he says and this is confirmed uh, in the witness of others there in Acts 15, different places where they the the apostles realize, hey, Peter, God's called you to go to the Jews and Paul, God's called you called you to go to the Gentiles. And that's so that's supported throughout the scripture. But when he says there, he says the end of this, or the point of this, or what what God has called us for, is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his his name. What in the world does that mean? Because there's a lot of movements in Christianity and, and a lot of different ministries and ideas and these things. But he says specifically, God wants me, and, and, and what I'm, my part of my ministry is this, to bring about the obedience of faith. So the question is, what does it mean, the obedience of faith? Does it mean that, and this is honestly, we we'll probably won't solve it today, spoiler alert. Because this is an argument that has gone on uh, for, since he wrote it. <laughs> Is he saying that he is to bring all nations to the obedience of the gospel or the faith of the gospel, meaning like the tenets of our faith? Or is he saying that that he's called to help people to be essentially obedient in the faith or as they have faith? In other words, as God leads you in something or you read something in black and white, that his ministry is to bring about that to obey the faith that God has given you. And I think it's interesting because the context, and maybe this is why there's the argument, but the context seems to be in both of them. Because note here, he says, he says, the obedience, uh, back in verse 5, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, which that would be evidently salvation. But then it says, verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, to the nations, which is typically used for people that are not saved. And then he says, and to you who are already called, the people that are saved. So his ministry seems to be to bring people to say yes to Christ, whether it's people that are believers or people that are unbelievers. Now, how do you do that? Because there's a lot of ideas about that, isn't there? How does one move forward in a calling that is to bring people in obedience? Because you get weird stuff. Have you ever heard of the shepherding movement? Right? That was kind of a weird thing where you kind of have, uh, and I'm not against communal living or something like that, I'm not making an argument here, but you had an idea where the, essentially you had a separate community, and there's different ones. There's the Bruderhof, and there's different ideas about it, but you have kind of this core leadership and it, it even boils down to when you want new pants, you go to that leadership and say, you turn your pants in and they evaluate them. And they, is there enough holes in them? Have they been used enough? And if they haven't, they kick you back your pants and they say, no, you keep wearing these. But if they, if they see that your pants have, are worn out enough, they'll say, OK, yeah. And then they'll issue you new pants. So that, is that bringing about the obedience of the faith? Probably not. Was that born out of something, a desire for holiness? Yeah. If you read the writings, a lot of these communal places, they started off with an idea that we want to have a community that is wholly given and completely trusting in Jesus. And then at some point, it kind of ends up sort of weird sometimes. Is he or is he we have the kind of these other ideas where uh, if on the other side of the complete extreme where the gospel is just kind of like, hey, get saved, live how you want. God understands. It's not a big deal. You know, just kind of sin. He gets it. You're not perfected yet. You know, kind of whatever. So you have two extremes. But here, when Paul's saying this, to bring about the, the obedience to the faith of the gospel, by looking at his other letters, we can really, and even I think in this letter too, we can understand what his heart was and what his methods were. You might recall even when he writes to the Corinthians, he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 1.24, excuse me, he says, uh, he says we don't, he goes, we refrain from coming to you. Remember, he wrote the first letter, which is basically a huge letter of rebuke. 16 chapters of repent. <laughs> 16 chapters of this is going on. This wild sin is going on in your gathering. You need to repent. This guy's out of control. You need to boot him. 1 Corinthians 5. You know, 1 Corinthians 6. You need to stop fornicating. You need to stop suing each other. 1 Corinthians 7. He goes on and on and on with this huge rebuke. In 2 Corinthians, when he writes back to them and to check in on them and to com- uh, commend them for their obedience to his first letter, uh, their, ultimately their obedience to Jesus, he makes a note there in verse 23 and 24. He says, I didn't go to you in person because I didn't want to smash your faith. He says, I didn't, I didn't show up with all my apostolic authority because I didn't want to destroy you. I didn't want to fight with you. He says, instead, I sent this letter, and he says, we don't want to lord over your faith in verse 24. He says, our goal is not to lord over your faith. In other words, be the lord of your faith. Tell you what you have to do in your faith. Cause you to, you know, force you to conform to some doctrinal statement or something like that. He says, no, our heart is not to force conforming. Our heart is to help you in your joy. Now, a lot of times, helping people with their joy is lovingly, caringly saying this is going on in your life and it's robbing you of your joy. You're, you're trying to self-medicate because you have some sort of issue that's, that's, that's destroying you. And I wanna help you to not have to self-medicate. I wanna help you to not be angry all the time. I wanna help you to not be grieved all the time. I wanna help you to not be anxious all the time, right? And so a person who is a helper of joy doesn't mean you go, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter, but it means your heart is completely different. Have you ever, Try to force or wanted, even wanted just to force someone to do what you wanted them to do? We all have, I think. Whether it's with our children, whether it's with our spouse, whether it's with a, a politician, whether it's with whoever it might be. But we just, just want to make them do what's right. And it never works, does it? It's interesting. We can get people to do stuff we think they should do. And a lot of times, I think out of a, a, a place, maybe it's fear. Maybe it's actually wanting to be helpful. I don't know. We're so complicated. But sometimes we guilt people into things. Well, you know, you really should. Why aren't you doing this? Don't you know? And then we kind of convince them. We go, okay, I guess I will. But then now they're doing this thing on the outside because we've guilted them into it. Or shame. We've shamed them. I can't believe you would do that. That's, That's a really hard thing. It's a rough thing to say to someone. If you you really kind of think it through, I can't believe you're like that. I can't believe you would say that. I can't believe you would do that. Because when we say that to another person, what we're doing, them is we're trying to shame them into recanting from what we don't want them to do. Even it could be a bad thing that they're doing. But to try to shame someone, I cannot believe. I am so moral. And I cannot believe that you would do that thing that you're doing. I cannot believe that you would say that. I would not say that. I am at this standing, and you are at that standing, and I have pronounced judgment because you're doing that. And sometimes when we say something like that, it can get people to change, can't it? They can go, oh, man, I, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to do that. Man, you can't believe I did that. Is it really that bad? And then based on our authority and our opinion, we shame someone into doing something, and we have to be careful with that. Because guilt and shame, they can change behavior, but they never change the heart. They will not change the heart. And, then, and so Paul here, he makes a statement. He says, hey, I'm here to be helper of people's joy. His motivation is not just to get someone to change their behavior. His motivation is to see someone in their heart, in the inward man, give their life to Christ. Now, I understand sometimes there's a time just to withhold our behavior, right? You're, you're upset, you're, uh, you know on the family trip and everybody's hungry and you're lost and it's cold and you know it's late and all these things and there, and, and and you want to rage or you want to be scared or you want to be upset and you just have to say no i'm not going to do that <laughs> i'm not going to act upon my feelings i understand there's a place for that but the the even in making a conscious decision that i'm not going to act upon the feelings that i know are immoral is the decision of the heart and it's a decision that that Eventually, where our treasure is, our heart will follow. So I'm not saying that there's never a time we do that. But I'm saying for someone who has this commission and this grace to bring obedience, to help people get to a place of either saying yes to their faith, yes to salvation, or helping people get to a place where they're saying yes to when Jesus wants them to do something. He says, that's what my mission is. There's a lot of other great places to to turn to and talk about that. And he talks about in in Colossians chapter 3, if you'd like to read it on your own, starting in verse 9. He talks about humility, clothing ourselves in love, you know, preferring one another, being excellent to one another. You know, this is our call as Christians. And then I I wrote another one. uh, Well, I'll save that one for later because we'll move on. So then after this, he says to them, then it's the, the two (laughs) it says, <laughs> including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ too. So this is, this is where we get from the, in Paul, the, the chapter 1, verse 1, it says Paul, chapter 1, verse 7, to those churches in Rome, <laughs> to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And again, I think I mes- mentioned it last week, but the word saints there, it's uh, the most common used word in the Greek for, for uh, believers, and it just means holy ones people that belong to Christ, people that are set aside for the Lord. and So he's writing to believers. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing, the first tenet, or at least the last part, the closing of his introduction, is he says, I want to come to you in grace. I want grace to flow out to you. And I want peace to flow out to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that just to make a side note, this is a very good motivation. Uh, he even says this when he writes co- uh, corrective letters. And it's a great rule of thumb. It's a great note excuse me, for you and for me. That whenever we're relating to someone and we want to communicate information or correction, whether it's encouraging information or correctional information, or if you'd like to call that a word of the Spirit, however you would like to phrase that, that we start, that's our basis from which we start. Grace and peace to you. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of two greetings of the day, shalom, the Hebrew greeting, uh, and uh, the the greeting of grace to to someone in Greek, but so he's he's taking two cultural greetings and he's mixing them. But it's an important place that we start at: grace and peace to you. You're completely screwing up your life. I'm concerned about you. Hey, grace and peace to you. I want grace to you. I want God's favor on your life. I want God's peace in your life. It's a it's a it's a pronouncement. It's something that we as believers have the ability. To offer to others, I have grace and I have peace from you through Jesus Christ. Then he's going to say, first in verse 8, so the first tenet that he's going to write, it's actually going to be very personal. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, excuse me, for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And there's probably a lot to be unpacked there, uh, and I encourage you to study it out on your own time. But just to make a note here, he's he's expressing to them a couple of things. Number one, he says, man, your faith, what's happening out of Rome is being talked about all around the known world. Everywhere I go, I hear about the things that are, that are going on, the things that you're doing. Secondly, he says this, that God is his witness. In other words, he says, God can attest to what I'm about to tell you. And then again, because he's the king of Commas, he said, God, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And the statement that he's make there, it's, when he says my spirit, it's again, it's the word pneuma, like it almost always is. But he says, essentially, it's like uh, we would say to someone, you seem down in your down in spirits, right? We're not saying that some sort of spiritual reality around you is is down. When we say when we're talking about someone's spirit, we're talking about their mood, right? How they are, who they are, and 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 their what they're like. So Paul says this: I serve God from my spirit. It's who I am. It's what I want to do. I'm I'm all in on this. That's the point that he's making here. I'm all in on this. Then he goes on to say. Um, in verse 10, he says, I'm always praying for you. And that's what God is witnessing to, that he always is praying for you and that he really wants to see them. So he's just writing he's just ahead to saying, I want to come see you. I, I care about you. I'm, I'm interested in you. And I, I hope that uh, we can all look together and see this, um, this flow, that there's a, there's a commonality here in everything he's writing to them. I care about you i i i god's commissioned me to to help you i want to do that not just because god's commissioned to me because it's in my spirit it's, it's what i want to do i love you these are just important facts about ministry how we can help each other we cannot be cold to one another and uncaring about whether we cannot be snide to one another we can't be angry with one another will that happen yeah it probably will I'm sure many of us could raise our hands and say, I was at a church and the pastor did this, or someone did that, or then this happened and then that happened, and, and it probably did. So bad is going to happen. But just because bad happens, it doesn't mean that we throw it all out. There's a way in which we can advance and we can help each other. When I say advance, I mean be helpful to his kingdom and help one another. And it's in this kind of, uh, in this vein, in this way of just saying, hey, I care about you, and I want to help you. And when we don't experience that, we can cry out to God and say, hey, I, I'm not, there's something happening in my soul. We can be honest. I don't like these people. <laughs> you know, I don't want to deal with these people. Or I don't like this guy who's talking. Or, you know, what's good? Lord, help me. Help me. What do you want? You know, the, the, to be honest and to move forward in that honesty in our own life, it's paramount. Then he's going to go on here. He's going to say, For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Verse 12, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as as amongst the, the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And this is interesting because Paul says, I want to go and I want to impart to you a spiritual gift that will strengthen you. I want to help you to grow and to be strong in your faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says this. He says, I want to go and I want to be encouraged by you. I want you to be encouraged by my faith and I want to be encouraged by your faith. This is another really important, and I want to say kind of two things about this verse. This is kind of where we'll end. There's something very important about this. Number one, that none of us get to a place of such spiritual awakening or understanding where we don't need the encouragement of another. And when we start to say things like, what could you possibly offer me? When we start to look at other people and go, well, I just have the problem and I've already prayed about it, so I'm not even going to bring you in. I'm not even going to talk to you about it. And this isn't like James feels rejected, so he would tell me stuff. I'm not into that at all. This is just that if we're going to be healthy Christians, we have to open up to one another and be honest. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, that's one of the things that he leads with there in verse 9. He says, stop lying to each other. I love that. Stop lying to each other. And I don't think it's just lying like the fish I caught was this big. I think it's more practical than that. Stop saying, I'm fine, when you're not. That doesn't mean that you need to dump your guts to every schmo that you see, that you go walk through the church and just tell everybody, hey, I'm having a really bad day. Hey, bad day. No, we're not saying that. But when someone that you know and that you trust, when your life is tanking, stop lying about it. And just be honest, my life is tanking. And so I love that Paul says, look, I can use encouragement. Remember, this is the same Paul that two or three times in the New Testament, Jesus has to personally come to him and say, don't be scared. Because he was scared. And it took Jesus' personal encouragement. It took Luke riding along with him. It took, in one point, an entourage of like 11 people supporting him, going through his missionary journey with him. For him to continue going. So this isn't lip service, this isn't poetic justice, or he's not just saying what sounds good here. He's saying, I hope to be encouraged by you. Now the second side of this is: does Paul have the right, or does he should he have the expectation to show up to a church and be encouraged? This is maybe a little bit more cutting, a little bit more difficult, because he seems to indicate to them, I expect to walk into your fellowships, and I expect Spiritual encouragement from you guys, from you, generically. Everybody that I walk into your service, everybody that I go to your home, I expect something. Is it okay, and should Paul expect from just plebs, you know, whatever, it's a Roman word for peasants, from the, the, I've got to say, I think one of my least favorite uh, Terms, and I'm not making anybody offender for a word, is the idea of the, the lay leader. The lay leader. And the idea that, well, you're not paid staff, so you're, not, you're kind of like a pseudo, you you're kind of leader. Like, that's horrible. There's pastors, there's leaders, or there's not. This is the idea of clergy, laity. Actually, if you do a little research, when, when Jesus writes to uh, and he talks about, in Revelation, he says, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It's Nicolaity. He says, I hate the doctrine that there's people that are superior to the laity. It's kind of interesting stuff. But there's this idea that, it's, that you know, Paul says, I just expect when I show up at church to be encouraged. Now, two things about that in our last couple of minutes here. Number one, he's not trying to be a jerk, right? He's not trying to be rude and saying, when I show up, I'm the man, I'm the one going everywhere, you owe me, you better encourage me or else. Clearly he's not saying that, because he says, I hope to be able to bless you. I hope that I can bless you, and I hope you can bless me. What he's pointing out is, I hope to be able to see spiritual maturity, and that you'll be a blessing to me. And, you know, it's funny, this week, I was having uh, coffee with... uh, uh, Chris Garrison, he's the pastor of uh, Peninsula Baptist. We were, just, we're friends, we're just kind of hanging out. And he was just talking about, because he went on a sabbatical, and he was just talking about things that he had learned on his sabbatical and, and, and whatnot. It was actually a, a blessed time. I enjoyed hanging out with him. And you know, one of the things that he was pointing out is he said, you know, one of the things that I think God wants me to do at our church is not just expound passages, because that's what I, I try to do. He said, I think it's to, to try to lead the people. And that, you know, that, like, for, that's kind of stuck in my mind this whole week. I think it was on Tuesday, or I can't remember what, it was, what day it was uh, that we had coffee. But it kind of stuck in my mind, and I've been kind of thinking about it. Because I've never esteemed myself as a leader, and I've never esteemed myself as like a rah-rah guy or something like that. Uh, when we started this Bible study, just kind of talking from the heart for a second, when we started this Bible study 14 years ago, we, we literally just said, hey, let's let's just my wife and I, and there was a a guy named Luke, not Luke Connolly, another Luke that was with me. He did music with us. and um, So there's a few of us that that came over here to start a Bible study. And really the whole heart of it was like, hey, let's just preach the Bible and see what happens. (laughs) That's that's how this started. And and, and really for me, the the verse that the Lord gave me was Jonathan and his armor bearer. When Jonathan's out there and he's got his armor bearer and they see the little tent with like, I can't remember how many is like 12 Philistines or something like that. And he says... And they kind of like creep up on the hill and they're looking. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wave at them. All right. There's two of them. There's like 12 or 20 or whatever it is of them. We're going to wave at them. And if, if they say, hey, come to us, then we'll know that God has delivered them into our hands and we'll slay them. So I had a different application, but we'll slay them. And he says, but if they say, hey, you stay on that hill and we'll come to you, then we're going to bounce out. Because <laughs> God has not delivered them into our hands. And so the way the Lord spoke to my heart uh, in kind of a sub- subjective way, in a sense, from that scripture, was like, we're just going to come over here. And if people say, hey, we're into this, like if it grows and there's fruit from it, and then we'll stay. And if they're just like, ah, eh, that's cool, whatever, then we'll leave. It's fine. So I'm not trying to make any excuses. I'm just trying to say how this has worked out in my life and where ultimately I'd like to see us go as a church because there probably is a need for real leadership, which I'm not good at. And so, as we've just, that's basically what we've done for 14 years just kind of taught the word and. As ministries have kind of rise, rose up, you know, Tim Reed leads our, our small group ministry because Tim Reed was like, hey, I want to do small groups. And we're like, yes, sounds good. Let me know how that goes. <laughs> you know, just kind of, that's kind of been my attitude in, like a, in a lot of ways. Not in a bad attitude, like I don't really care, but just like I'm not an administrator, so I don't really do that stuff. Because I was thinking this week about what is, what would God have me do? If I was going to be a leader of people and, and actually move forward in the church, how would I want to lead? And this is it, I think, for me. This is where I live. This is my heart. This is my shtick. Every pastor has a shtick that they always go back to, whether it's the rapture or prophecy or the gospel. Every pastor has a shtick, and this is my shtick. Let's grow in the Lord. <laughs> God has great things for you. He really does. And every day, in every moment, we have decisions of whether we're going to be involved in that or we're not. And if you're not involved in that, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He does not condemn you if you reject your opportunity as a saved person to be effectual in his kingdom. He does not condemn you for that. But every time that we reject God's offer to involve us in his kingdom, a few things happen. We rebel, not against law. It's not not that. We're forgiven. We're told that. It's all under the blood but we rebel against love. And when we rebel against love, when a child rebels against their father or their mother, it creates a separateness. It creates disappointment. It creates difficulty. Typically, if, if, a, if a child is rebelling against the, the uh, invitation of a parent, it's, it's just something better, right? A good parent invites their children. So if a good parent says, I want you to clean your room, you're saying, I'm inviting you. I'll force you because I'm your parent. But I'm inviting you to clean your room because clutter... Stresses people out, doesn't it? Clutter causes mold. Clutter causes filth. So as a parent, you're saying, hey, I, I, don't, I want you to clean your room because I don't want those things for you. And so if you have a rebellious teenager that finally says, well, forget you. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. Then they live in that. And that's their right. And you as a parent, you, know, you don't have to be mad about it. But you just go, oh, that's, that's, that's not good. Now, we can debate parental methods or whatever some other time. But the point is, and the point of the analogy, the metaphor is simply this, that God is inviting us every single day to be part of building up his kingdom. And the more that we reject that, the negative side of it is the more we reject it, the more isolated we become. When he says, hey, be kind to everyone, when we reject that, we detract from his kingdom. When we are unkind, we detract from his kingdom. When he says, hey, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself, when we reject that for fear of how painful that might be, we detract from his kingdom. He loves you, and you're going to heaven, but those attitudes will be burnt away. The positive side of it is every time we struggle in our core and we say, I see what you're calling me to do, and I want to move forward in that. He says that develops a fruit and sometimes it's really small and it's just beginning and the fruit becomes just maybe a joy out of the fact that you acknowledge uh, uh, the, the honesty of where you're at in your life and the honesty of invitation for you to be changed. And there's joy and there's peace in that. And it's a beginning. And then as he moves on, he says, no, I, I, I want this in your life. I'm asking you to spend time with me. And if we say no, it's perfectly Fine. But we will walk through this world without influence from the spiritual good, and instead we're going to ingest Twitter and Facebook and the news, and that will be all the input we have. And if the only input we have into our spiritually saved soul is garbage, then the spirit that resolves and resides in us will have to combat that garbage. But our mind will continue to revolve around and and digest and and ingest into our soul that garbage. So we as believers are called, the reason we're called to spend time in his word and to seek his face corporately and individually is so that we can grow. Because that painful growth that says no to the flesh and yes to God, to love him and my neighbor as myself, that painful growth is obedience to faith. And so when we say yes to faith, God changes supernaturally our souls and our brains and we begin to be more like him on this earth. And while our flesh suffers and rages and where our friends are bewildered and perhaps angry, we internally grow with a power and with a genuineness that is otherworldly. And then we become the overcomers. We become that which we've called to be. We become those who have the joy and the peace. But the more we retract and we say, no, no, that's too hard. No, I don't want to tell someone about that. No, I don't want to, I don't want to pray about that. No, I don't want to even address that. No, I don't think it'd be too scary. I would feel this way or this might happen or there's this fallout. Then the more we're alone, And it's miserable. So if I was going to lead people, which I do not esteem myself to do, I'm pretty much a C-plus guy, maybe a C-minus. That's where I'd want to lead you guys. That we as a church move forward in these great and wonderful directives that God has given us to say no to ourselves. That I would say no to myself and yes to God in every instance. And when I don't to just acknowledge, God, I said no to you. And that was foolish because I knew better. And I I want that relationship. Please forgive me. Not forgiveness because the blood wasn't enough, but forgiveness so that he and I can have fellowship. And I want to walk with you more. That would be my leadership. And I think that the more that we do that, and the more that we say no to ourselves, and there's no rules But the more we say, yes, I'll I'll give of myself, not not money per se, but I'll give of myself. I'll ask somebody how they're doing, and I'll actually listen. I'll invite someone to my house, even though I can sit on my couch and watch TV instead. I'll show up to help people. Paul said, I'm going to show up to your churches. And he was perfectly valid to say, I hope that you bless me, and I hope that I bless you, because it was simply walking with God and he said that's what I want for you guys and if we want our world to be changed it's not going to be through legislation or politics it's going to be through love it's going to be through care and it's going to be through obedience of faith so God has great things for you and don't grow weary in well-doing I'm sorry for going so far over um genuinely but uh the Lord loves you let's pray Father thank you for your word And thank you for the example in our brother Paul and an example in our brother Jesus. Lord, thank you that we have a great cloud of witnesses that went before us that testified to your fidelity, to your kindness, to your grace, Lord, to the completion of your purpose. And Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and in our minds and our souls, whatever region or where to go or however it works, and that you would bring us to repentance again and again and again. And I pray that we would be those that look at this fallen world with love and with care and are willing to spend of ourselves to see your kingdom grow. Lord, thank you for the faith that these people do have. and Lord, thank you for what you have worked in us. And Lord, we just want to grow more. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. If anybody wants to pray about something, we'll be up here.